namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa homage to the buddha the blessed noble and fully self enlightened one Um, I think at the time of the the Buddha, in, you know, in his own time, there were uh, various ideas uh, around this word karma. Uh, we we know it from the, more commonly through the Sanskrit word karma with an with an R, but um, the way that Theravada uh, spells it was just K A W M A, which is Pali, which is what the uh, scriptures are actually written in. Um, which would have been a dialect around modern Varanasi, that sort of, you know, around the Ganges. And um, it's a core sort of teaching, really. It's one of his main insights upon liberation, upon his awakening. He has what we... He, he talks of his three... <coughs> excuse me, three things that happened to him upon awakening, upon you know, the, the immediacy afterwards, after his awakening, was that he was able to see his past lives and see how his ethical decisions had brought him to this place and how they'd caused him to suffer and to put him into dire straits. And then he was able to see beings moving from one realm to the other. And that, according to their ethical decisions, their moral decisions, and what, what was then a personal understanding, a personal law, became a cosmic law. And the third thing that he recognised was that all his defilements had gone. So there was nothing negative within his character and personality anymore. So these are known as his three, it's the three knowledges. Um, and it's very difficult, I know that you may come across uh, Buddhist speakers who sort of deny rebirth um, and things like that but it's very difficult to read the scriptures without coming to the conclusion that he definitely did uh, understand the process as being very long term over lifetimes and the reason for that was that uh, we begin from this point of not knowing now, this not knowing is um, it's not a culpable state. It's often translated as ignorance, this word that I'm referring to, avidya, for those of you who know, who know it. It's, re it's referred to as ignorance, and, and that, that has a sort of pejorative meaning, as though you should have known, you sh you know, you've not been such an idiot. Uh, but it's actually a very neutral state of simply not knowing. And this not knowing, then uh, it's actually, it's, it's your basic intelligence, that which does not know, uh, finding itself in a situation makes sense of it and it's made sense of it for us by the society uh, culture, history that we find ourselves in and it's from there that we build up our uh, characters and personalities so that we could say that any given moment there is underlying this state of just not knowing 
and because of that we've we've moved into a situation which is um, uh, an understanding and this fundamental understanding as to as to who we are or what we are or where we're going to is is actually um, the fundamental attitude that causes everything else hmm? so one of the main uh, one of the main understandings that we have is that we are human beings this is a big problem conventionally there's no problem everybody we know that we're human beings as opposed to primates and and the cat and all that sort of stuff but when we talk when we actually say to ourselves well I'm a human being our energies go into trying to make this life um, the end, the purpose of our living. So, especially these days where you see people have lost, and many people have lost any spiritual or religious foundation, there is only this life. And when you ask yourself, what is it that I really want? You know, really deep down, what does I really want? I think you could just come across the word, I want to be happy. Huh? you just want to be happy <laughs> and this happiness is then sought for in the world and what is it that brings us happiness as we understand it it's sensual pleasure it's relationships it's um, our work sometimes uh, our hobbies you see so there's, a, there's an absolute investment in life as a place where if you can just get it right you'll be happy and what this produces is a relationship to life and a relationship to people and what we have as collections we collect things we collect money we collect our job we collect people and that collection uh, the word that's normally come for it is attachment and the reason we're attached to it is because this makes me happy so I'm attached, to my, I'm attached to the things I own, to my house, to my HDTV and all that sort of stuff because this is what's making me happy. That's where I actually put the investment. Unfortunately, having created this, these little islands of, um, of happiness around objects, uh, any, anything that begins to upset that, I, I form a, a very negative relationship towards. And that's your aversion. Anything that undermines my happiness becomes my enemy. And if the enemy is too big, then I become frightened. I get very anxious. See? So there you've got, from this fundamental misunderstanding, which is often termed a delusion, uh, you have a uh, fundamental, re uh, a basic relationship to life of having to collect things around you, hold on to things, keep things, which are going to be uh, going to make me happy and I've got to make sure that that mustn't be upset so from that sense of attachment often referred to as greed it's not quite not quite the right word just attachment uh, we get the aversion which splits into two uh, relationships one of aversion not liking pushing away and one of running away anxiety fear hmm? so from that basic relationship uh, we produce our karma 
Now, kama in uh, the Buddhist teaching is a, is a technical word which actually only refers to an action. That's what it really means, just an, an action. And whatever we do, whether it's an act of thought, uh, an act of speech or, uh, or something that we actually um, do physically, an, an action as such, um, is driven from that particular delusion. Okay? So constantly, we're in constant, um, uh, we're in a constant relationship of trying to jiggle the world to make sure that we're sort of happy. Even as you're sitting here, you might find that without you knowing it, you become slightly uncomfortable in your seat and you shift position. If you just, if you just watch, if we just watch ourselves throughout the day, we're constantly moving towards comfort, towards what makes us feel happy to always trying to escape what is uncomfortable, what is, what is making us feel unhappy. And these actions, this is what the Buddha referred to as kama. These are your actions. And <clears throat> in dependence origination, which is the Buddha's psychology as to how we create uh, our misery, we'll go on to happiness towards the end of the, the talk, a real happiness. One. So I don't want to get you too depressed. And they said the way that we uh, create this unhappiness, he points out very clearly through the teaching of dependence origination. Right? This dependence origination, uh, you might come across in later Buddhism, was expanded completely into a sort of universal concept of interrelatedness, everything, everything being dependent on something else. But in the Buddha's original teaching, although you may find those sorts of ideas, He's very centered upon our in, inner personal psychology. So what happens to us on the outside is not really material to the process of liberation. It's always what's happening inside us which is actually causing either the misery or the escape from misery. So for instance, if, I, um, if I'm on, uh, you know, in, in the quiet coach of a train, I'm sure you've all been, been on a quiet coach, and uh, somebody decides to use their mobile, you see, and it's what's happening in me that's turning the quiet coach into a really small little hell realm. Because I'm saying they shouldn't be doing that, this is a terrible thing, it's a, it's a really unethical, un, you know, uh, punishable by law, and, it, and they shouldn't be doing it, and, and, and I'm getting all heated and hot about it, and all that's being created internally. Huh? It's not being created by the phone call. You see, and then of course suddenly my phone goes off, and uh, and, I, and this phone is of course very important, so I've got to make it. So, <laughs> and I presume that everybody else will understand that. So you can see that from this uh, relation, from if, if you look at if we look at ourselves throughout the day, you'll see that there's always something coming at us from the outside. There's always something impinging upon our uh, consciousness, and there's always this. There's always this response, right? We can call it a reaction rather than a response. Because the reaction is already dictated to by our past actions which have produced certain habits, certain patterns of behaviour within us. And it's really beginning to see how these are produced uh, which allows us to see where the escape is. Okay? So, so long as people say to themselves, you know, the reason I'm unhappy is because of the government or because of bankers, or because of uh, uh, my neighbour, or because of my kids and all. So if I am constantly thinking that the other person is causing, is the direct cause of my misery, then 
I'm always going to be in some sort of um, some sort of relationship to the world of trying to change the world Hmm? I'm always trying to do something I'm always trying to do something out there which is going to make me happy in here Hmm? and I'm sure we've all experienced people who've tried to change us yeah and it's 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 the last thing we individually want another person to do so as soon as you try to change somebody else or try to change a situation then you often find yourself in this very antagonistic um, uh, position where in fact you find yourself making things worse Hmm? now if we go through the Buddha's teaching about how we create these mental states you see very clearly that he puts the accent on a moment uh, the moment of identity so there is in dependence origination this moment where something impinges upon us through the five senses he calls it also the sixth sense so it's something which is coming from the outside somebody says something or you see something hmm? and as it were it comes into the mind into consciousness Uh, I'm using these words very loosely eh, because they have so much meaning these days it comes into the mind as a sort of primary primary object which is uh, recognised acknowledged, it's recognised acknowledged so if now if we're sitting here now and suddenly a bell goes off the first thing would be the actual acknowledgement that there is a bell going off that's your first, right, that's your first thing then it's taken inside you see and suddenly we attach a meaning to that bell which is it's an alarm bell is it? so as soon as an alarm bell goes then you get the meaning that there may be fire etc so you get higher levels of understanding of what the alarm bell might mean you see and then uh, the understanding comes in towards the end of that process of um, I have to get out of here right now if you take for instance just a normal thing like you want to, um, you're, you're in a shop and you want to buy something uh, the normal sentence would be I want that right I want that Hmm? but what the Buddha is actually pointing out is that psychologically it's the reverse so first of all you 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 see Costa coffee and you smell Costa and you smell the the coffee and that's your first recognition that's the the point as it were of perception or cognition that this is Costa coffee and then with that, with that, you see, there arises the relationship that uh, we might have developed with Costa Coffee, which is I want. So there's your, there's your wanting coming in. So first of all, there's the, just the simple contact. Then there's this wanting that comes, which is there because of our past experience with Costa Coffee. Because once you've created an act and you redo that act, you are constantly reinforcing a certain relationship. And once that's happened, then the I comes in. See? So it's coffee, want, I. That's the process in terms of psychology. Now, it's only at that point of I, with the identification that I want this coffee, that you get the empowerment of that desire, and in you go and buy yourself some coffee. right? And that's the becoming. So this word becoming in Buddhist teaching is this constant reinvention of the self constant reinvention of me a constant playing around with who I am and where I want to go so an identity is not something static it's always something that's moving with time and place and with what it is I'm experiencing now the the uh, <clears throat> the reason why this this act of karma this this action 
to understand this is so important because when we understand things are happening in that way then you can see the escape see? if it happened the other way if the identity came in immediately uh, there would be as it were no no gap n not enough uh, not enough a gap between the I want this and the actual action because the I is that point where the you, you've absorbed into the wanting yeah it's like you've become the wanting you see but when we're actually awake and this and I'm not talking about sitting here meditation I'm talking about just walking down the street yeah? when you're actually with that earlier process of wanting as as a force within you of actually moving you towards the object then there's no identity you see you're still aware of the desire and being aware of something means you can't be it right? you've already created a separation now when you look into that separation then you begin to understand what the Buddha's teaching about not self is because if you separate from something you can't be it huh? so as soon as I'm walking down the street and I get this wonderful whiff of, of Costa coffee you see if I'm aware of that of that desire arising in me you see then it creates a little distance it creates a little separation and that separation allows me just enough time to reflect upon whether I should go in and have this cost of coffee or not. See? So this becomes a deep and profound moral problem for, for anybody into trying to undo past conditioning. So now you might say to yourself, well, uh, yes I will, you see, it could be so overpowering that in fact you miss that moment and before you know it you're there drinking your coffee. Hmm? Uh, this I'm, I'm sure this happened to you at home where you, the idea of you, you're doing things or at work you're doing things and then suddenly tea and before you know it you drink your tea and then you suddenly realise you've drunk your tea and you don't remember drinking your tea so you may as well have another cup so this is, <laughs> this is called the unmindful life you see so what you're trying to do is come back on that process to regain control over your lives that's what it is it's about, it's about actually going back to a position where you're in control and not the habits that you've created Remember, nobody's created, now, that's the other sort of insight, nobody's created these habits within us. We've done it through the mechanisms of our own psychology. And it's seeing how we're then trapped in these particular habitual formations, right? These were, for those of you who know, these are cut, these are your sankaras, that you begin to uh, try to pull out of it. Now, you don't pull out of it until it begins to hurt. See? So long as you're getting your up, up comments for, from, from these habitual actions and you're getting some pleasure and the pleasure is and the happiness is outweighing the, the, uh, the, the unhappiness or the, the effort that you have to make to get these happiness then you tend to stay on that treadmill you tend to keep moving you see but as soon as something sort of disappears from that equation and you find that actually there's more suffering involved than there was uh, than there is happiness then that's when uh, you you start looking for some sort of spiritual practice to, <laughs> to help you out of the hole. So, if for instance uh, you know you 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 uh, have a habit of, of drinking tea, you see, it or, or coffee a lot, you see, and it's only when the doctor says you know you've got a really high blood pressure here, you you better come off the coffee. Now something comes out of the something destroys that easy equation that there was with coffee equals happiness, right? Now coffee equals happiness, but it also equals ill health, right? And suddenly you have to pull yourself out. 
as you pull yourself out of any habitual action, right? Some of it may be deeply ingrained from early childhood, and some of it may be physical, like smoking or alcohol. You see, then what you come across is this enormous resistance. Hmm? The 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 whole psychological mechanism has been set up to find happiness in this particular habitude, and suddenly you're saying, "Well, I want to stop that." You see, uh, and then there has to be this this pulling back, which is uh, you know, which is the suffering of coming off a habit. So, uh, if you find yourself constantly, you know, grazing throughout the day, little snacks here, snacks there, and you're suddenly bloated into this huge balloon, and you go to the doctor says, "Well, you know, if you don't, if you don't lose weight, you're gonna, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna explode or worse." You see, and you say, oh God, I've got to stop. You see, so now you have to come off all these little snacks, which were little comfort zones where you found happinesses, and it's painful. You've got to, you've got to really sort of work at it. And in coming off that, you see, you're beginning to realize, or we, we are beginning to realize, that this whole process of liberation, this whole process of karma, is tied in to the whole process of ethical living, tied into the whole process of ethical living, and that is tied into the deep insight into how we create suffering for ourselves. It's all one and the same thing. It's not as though there's all this meditation going on with great insights into not-self and, and, um, and conditioning, and you can separate that from your daily actions, because the one is an expression of the other. Okay. So here we are on this, uh, the wheel of dependent origination. Uh, dependent meaning that every step is dependent on some step before it, or dependent on some present conditioning, Mm, that's what it means and uh, there's no absolute origination nothing arises of itself everything that arises is dependent on something else so here we have this internal psychology which is trying to make sense of the world and trying to create happiness for itself mm. and every time every time we go into that mode of seeking happiness in the sensual world then this wheel turns. It's not turning all the time. It doesn't turn when you're asleep. But every time it turns, it, as it were, uh, just, you know, reinforces the habit. Reinforces the habit. And it's only when we come off the habit that we realize how strong the habit actually is. So here we get this teaching of renunciation. Now, uh, the Buddha himself, of course, tried these very heavy self-mortification exercises, which had, uh, which had as their understanding that the problem was with the body. So if the body didn't have an appetite, then you'd never suffer from, from overeating. Huh? If, you, if, your body had, uh, if, if your body didn't have any sexual organs, then you wouldn't suffer from lust. And that, that was the idea. So by going into self-mortification exercises, you reduced the importance of the body. You stopped feeding the body, thinking that as soon as you waken the body up, then desire wakes. Desire wakes with it. See? So he found that to be uh, pretty useless, definitely not on the path, and just more suffering. So he, he abandoned that. But he didn't abandon the idea of renunciation. So renunciation is the point where uh, a person says to themselves, I have to give this up, for whatever reason, might be health reasons, psychological reasons, money reasons, whatever you see, and you stop doing a certain action, you stop, you stop uh, behaving in a certain way, 
and of course what you find is this enormous resistance hmm? it can be physical like if you know if if, a, if if one of our problems has been around food then every you know like it, it begins to cloy on the mind so it's being able to sit with that being able to sit with that pain where you're what you're actually doing is allowing the engine of that particular habit habit to lose power to lose power and this is where you could say the psychotherapy of Buddhism takes place once we've identified that a certain habit uh, is unhealthy for us then I don't know of any way in which you can undo that habit without going through the pain of allowing that desire to express itself and release its energy yeah and if you come across an easy way please tell me so you've got this uh, habit for instance of <coughs> you know taking snacks during the day eating all the time so every time you approach food every time somebody approaches food you see they have to stop this is a really powerful wonderful word in english stop see um I was in, in Spain recently doing the Camino. I was greatly overjoyed to see that the road sign was stop. You see, every time he came to the end of the road, he said, stop. I thought, oh, very intelligent. So when you say, when you say this word stop, it, you see, then it, it's as it were, puts a break and it allows you to feel this animal, this urge for that biscuit. See, comes up like that, you see. And if you can just stay there with it, if you can just bear with that urge and allow it to die away, what you're doing is draining that particular conditioning of its power, of its energy. And it comes to a point where it no longer has that sort of energy in it. And we, ex and we experience that as uh, an ease of being at food and being able to say no. See? And it's these little victories on the way that we realise that by simply... Uh, developing that little power of renunciation that we're actually changing ourselves very deeply hmm? and it's not just the change and this is where we're moving into a bit of happiness now you see? it's not just the change of letting go of something which is um, painful there's also some form of always some form of transformation because energy is never lost it's not it's not lost either in the universe I believe but it's definitely not lost psychologically and in fact it can grow so take something like loneliness so often we might find ourselves in a situation where we feel lonely hmm? it could be uh, just forced upon us because of circumstance or you know all our friends have gone on holiday and, and I'm just sat there watching the HDTV so I've got this I've got this loneliness you see now my normal reaction would be to phone up a friend and say I'm better uh, what are you doing tonight? You know, hey, do you want to go somewhere? Should we go? See, see uh, not actually recognizing that what's making me do this is a deep sense of loneliness. Hmm? When we look into that, when we stop that, when we say, right, I'm feeling lonely. I'm just going to sit here and, and and actually investigate that feeling. By which I don't mean doing some sort of psychotherapy, hmm? trying to find out why I feel lonely, and you know, is all my mother, you know, so, is it just to sit there and actually do rather than do this great big deep psych psychotherapeutic investigation but just sit there and just think what is loneliness what is it right and the, the heart speaks in feelings right? it doesn't need all these memories all, all these memories may have had some uh, might give us some original cause but what we're left with is the product of these things that have happened to us now the technical word for that in Buddhism is vipaka it's the result so there's a camera, there's an action, and then you get the result. 
when we stop still with something like loneliness what we're getting is the full force of the, the result of some conditioning that we have within us which is producing this state that you could say would be a discomfort of being on our own it might be a sense of not uh, loving ourselves of not um, of hating ourselves whatever it might be but it's definitely a discomfort of being on my own hmm? maybe an anxiety whatever now this feeling is the product of all this past conditioning so I don't have to go into the past conditioning whatever happened in the past is irrelevant to this actual product which is at the end of it this is the vipaga this is the product all I have to do is deal with this product this product now is very painful I feel lonely I feel alone nobody loves me you know uh, if you knew me you'd understand that uh, and all that sort of stuff and I'm sitting there with this self-pity or self-loneliness and all that now. So I stop all the verbiage, I stop the mind working on this emotion, I stop the mind working on that particular state, and that's how, by the way, these emotions develop, yeah? We develop them in the mind. So if you, if you, if you feel lonely, your mind it, it will enter into the higher faculties of your imagination and thought and begin to create wonderful reasons as to why you are lonely, useless, and, and you should make your way to the, to the nearest bridge. So it's a case of actually recognize the mind is actually now developing the state. So the first thing we do and the first thing you learn when you come to sit in meditation is you just stop the mind. And the reason why I think people don't want to stop the mind is that they think they're suppressing something. But you're not suppressing anything. All you're doing is actually stopping the indulgence of the mind, of, the, of yourself, in that particular mental state. By stopping the mind and not looking at the presenting emotion which is causing it, that would definitely be a suppression. That would definitely be repression because there's a negativity there. So the, the two forces that keep things out of our minds are the very forces that keep things away from us in the world, which we don't want, which is aversion and fear. So now, instead of running off and finding a friend or, 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 or doing a bit of clubbing or something like that, I decide to sit in this, very, in this room and sit with this loneliness. I stop the mind from agitating around this loneliness, proliferating around it, and I'm just sitting and bearing with the pain of loneliness. And as I sit there with the pain of loneliness, you see, I can, I can actually begin to understand what is the feel, what is, what is the, uh, the underlying feeling motivation of, of, of loneliness. Hmm? And it may be that occasionally words come to my mind, but I'm just staying with the feeling. And then to my uh, enormous surprise, you see, as I sit with it, it begins to dissolve. And there may come a point, even that first evening, there may come a point where that loneliness completely dissolves and I suddenly find myself in this beautiful state of solitude. Okay? And then I realize that if I stop indulging this loneliness and if I just bear with that particular state of mind, because that's all it is, just an emotional state of mind, it will actually die out and when it dies out, that energy will transform into solitude. And solitude is, to be perfectly content with being on one's own. Now, if I take any negative state of mind and do that, I find that the same thing happens. And the joy of that process is that actually I don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything to change yourself. All you have to do in that sense is do nothing, but bear with what is actually being presented. Now, that 
is the karma which is to do with liberation. No matter how many good works you do in the outside world, or bad works, it, that's not the particular thing that's going to be relevant to this inner process of transformation leading to liberation. That process is always inward. Uh, and what the world is doing is either pressing buttons which open up towards us, which actually awaken us to conditionings within us which are painful, or presenting us with situations where we can take this transformation and begin to develop the good heart. Hmm? And it's up to us to recognize that our real power is internal and not particularly external. Obviously, if you have power externally, you're, you're a boss or you're, you're the prime minister or something like that, then obviously one, one wants to do good. But internally, in terms of this liberation, it's always... Uh, in terms of liberation, it's always some internal process that's happening within us, which is moving us towards this liberation. So that there comes a point where one is liberated and cannot be touched by the world, it cannot be moved by the world. So in the Buddha's own words, the world argues with me, I don't argue with the world. So no matter, uh, you know, yeah, I'm sure some of you will have come across that lovely, lovely statement he makes, where he says, you know, if, if bandits were to come along with, um, uh, you know, with their um, knives and, and um, cut you from limb to limb, if anger should arise in you, there's no, you're no disciple of mine, you see. Now, when I said this once to a group, they said, yeah, but the Buddha had a great sense of humor. And I said, no, I said, <laughs> I, said I think he actually means it. So it doesn't, you see, because... Uh, the separation of that consciousness within from the body is such that yes there is pain but it doesn't produce this negativity because at, at its uh, deepest level there's a loss of identity with it so now if we go back on this process you see what we find is that this sense of identity is the point where I am saying I am now, I am, meaning I exist, right? And when you look into that at its, at its deepest level, you're always talking about your physical and mental processes. Huh? What is there beyond your physical and mental processes, beyond your body, mind, and heart, beyond your emotional life, your thought life, and your physical life, you see? So, I am. So, immediately, that I am is producing a certain relationship to this body and through the body to the world okay and when you take that to one step above about what I am then you get you know I am in this particular moment I am angry I am depressed so there's always this this direct relationship this identity with what we're actually experiencing and if it's not a direct identity that I am, it's, a, it's an identity of ownership. I have. So, is there something, is there something which um, can break that process and allow us to find a, for want of a better word, a different identity? So, one of the key teachings of the Buddha is this business of not-self. And all he's saying, it's a, it's a skillful means by which he allows us to investigate this phenomena that we call me in such a way that we're always creating a distance we're always creating a separation between that which knows and what it knows 
so in our meditation when there's pain in the knee there's pain in the knee there's something that knows the pain in the knee and by taking that objective stance to it there we discover a liberation from the pain now that liberation expresses itself by a lack of aversion towards the pain a lack of fear towards the pain hmm? so already right there with something as simple as pain we've experienced the liberation we've experienced liberation hmm? there's no you know don't um, Nibbana is actually staring us in the face it's just that we can't break through the veil and every so often we do it and we don't recognize that in fact we've actually touched upon a completely different level of consciousness so whereas before I had a headache and I would say oh I've got this terrible headache and I can't handle it and all that sort of stuff is it and I take aspirins and whatnot I now use it as something to observe and when the reaction stops of I don't want this headache or this is my headache and I'm just aware of the headache I am just aware of the headache as headache now I'm not saying it's not a headache I'm not saying it's not painful there is that gap you see and that little gap between awareness and the object of what it's aware of is the Nibbanic gap yeah a bit like you know the um, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that's Nibbana because Nibbana is a technical word meaning the end of the process but what we are experiencing by these little separations is that I'm not that you see? and by doing so this sense of I is always moving backwards so whereas before you might have said I have a headache now there is there is a headache whereas before we might have said I am angry we're now saying there is anger you see and that little separation is a liberation from not only that anger but from old ways of reacting to that anger old old habitudes by which we may have behaved when we, whenever we're angry so all these little all these little separations are little moments of, of liberation too and when that's taken to its final degree what we discover is this awareness is not actually part of this whole psychophysical organism it's something other than that and that's what the Buddha points to when he says that there is a consciousness which is not manifested there's nothing in it right which has no boundary because there's no phenomena and in all directions full of light so this this what he, what what he's guiding us towards is something which is transcendent and he would refer to that by referring to himself as the Tathagata that literally means gone there and when you look at his imagery it's always about going to the other island across the sea across water so these are very ancient images for telling us that there is something other than uh, other than something that other that there's an other which is separate from distant from uh, completely different from the way we normally experience life and that end process does not mean a negation of life often uh, Buddhism has been portrayed as a negation of life what what happens is is that this transformation is re-establishing a new relationship to that to to life to people to things and that relationship we describe as love so love is the basic relationship that you have towards people and even objects which uh, allows us to be in the world without being touched by it 
So, for instance, uh, well, the, the big example that the Buddha uses is that of a mother in his discourse on how to establish this mindfulness. He talks of a mother with her uh, four children, and the first one, who is a little child, is ill, so there's a natural desire to help the child, it's a compassion. One child has become successful in their exams or whatever, so she's naturally joyful for that child. Uh, one child, she's just uh, a friend to, friendliness, and that's the love. And when the child, when one child leaves home, that's fine. See, that's the equanimity. And that equanimity is, is stopping these, these three great relationships of love, compassion, and sympathetic <coughs> joy from sinking into their easy enemy of attachment, love, you know, you do what I say, of compassion, pity, grief, I'm so sorry for you, hmm? and joy, getting all excited, and, uh, and wanting, to, wanting to, sh to share that joy in, uh, in, in, in a wrong way. So if somebody wins the, the lottery, of course you're happy for them, but you know, you're waiting for them to send you a little check. <laughs> they <don't laughs> I mean, they are your best friend after all. See, and if he doesn't come, then he's very angry. So that shows us that shows us that the near enemy of of, uh, of of sympathetic joy is this is this envy, envy, jealousy, and what equanimity does is it cuts through all that. So um, if I were to uh, try to pull all this together, when we normally think about karma, we normally think of something which is coming to us because of our actions. So if I do something, if I, if I say something rude to somebody, then uh, you know, that person's going to be angry with me and I'm going to get my comeuppance from them. Right? They're going to tell people how horrible I am and things like that. That is, of course, a result. It's a karmic result. But that isn't really pertinent to the process of, of liberation. The liberation comes when that person now reacts to my, um, to my rudeness and I now have a chance to either see the pain that I'm getting from that person's rudeness and to let go of that and undermine my own uh, habitude of being rude or I can use it to increase my rudeness by having good answers, good, good, good comebacks. Hmm? That karma, that action is produced from some habitual way that I behaved in the past and therefore I have to be careful to come back on that process and coming back on that process means I've got to keep really alert so the mindfulness that we do when we sit is the very mindfulness that has to come with us throughout the day so as soon as we feel as soon as we see that initial desire coming up negative or positive desire but it's basically unethical right that you're either being greedy or you're being hateful as soon as we see that there is that ability to stay with it and not to not to let it uh, express itself through thought word through thought word or deed and just by allowing that desire to come up like that no matter how forceful it is and to remain still to remain still within that little bit within that storm allows that energy to expend itself and in so doing we undermine that whole little that whole habit that we've produced from the past hmm? and remember that that habit now is not wasted energy we find it being transformed through actions which are driven more from goodwill now this takes us what we begin to see then is that 
there's a process whereby there is an intention and there is an identity with that intention and it's the point of identity this I am which is so dangerous to us because once we've said I am I am angry I am unhappy then you've lost your separation from it you becoming that and that's what the Buddha means by becoming we're constantly reinventing ourselves we're constantly reinforcing old habits by saying I am I am this, I am that. And at a, a slightly less intense level, I have. So if you take any objects, you say, I have, legally speaking, you probably do own it. But if somebody, uh, when, when somebody steals it from you or, or, or you lose it, there's this enormous unhappiness around something, especially that you've, 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 you've attached to, you see. But then you realise that actually this, this having, this possession is, is, is just a... Um, it's, it's a legal understanding between human beings. Yeah? The, the, whoever stole it, I mean, they have it. It's their possession. So to go around saying that I, I you know, somebody stole my, uh, my mobile, it doesn't make sense anymore. Because it's not your mobile. It's, it, belong, it belongs to the person who's actually got it. See? So undermining these sorts of definitions, um, we undermine our relationship to the mobile. See? So whether we lose the mobile or not, it's not going to cause any suffering. Yeah? There's a lovely tale of some, um, I think it was a fairly modern tale, where there was a thief who kept coming into the convent to take something. And the, uh, the nuns tried to catch the thief, you see. And eventually, when they saw the thief running away, they, they ran after the thief saying, it's an offering, it's an offering, don't you see? Because it, just to stop the thief feeling bad about what they'd just stolen. So <laughs> this is an ability just to let go of things, you see, which doesn't come if you have that sense of strong identity, strong possession. So just, I mean, one little exercise that you can do when you go home is, is just look at something that you really do like and you really, uh, you know, feel that is, is yours, you see. And then just imagine what happens if it breaks or it gets stolen, you see. see. And just through these little imaginative exercises, one can begin to release oneself from these little imprisonments that we have around objects. Far more difficult is this business of identity, where I am, you see, and that comes up uh, most clearly, of course, when death approaches us, because when death approaches us, then we realise that this whole idea of I am is built completely on sand, uh, because when death comes, who are you, you see? I mean, when, that, when the light goes out, where's the I am, you see? I'm so, dead. Eh? Sorry? I'm dead. <laughs> well, you might say I'm dead. <laughs> so it's a case of um, recognising uh, that process of identity in our daily lives so that we actually stop it, stop that process and then uh, come back and find some, po either to let go of a habit or to find some positive way of re-establishing a good habit. So if one is making an offering of something, uh, you're going to help a person, then you have to be aware of any subliminal uh, the, the sort of small text which is saying you know if I do this for you when I need a bit of help I expect you to come and help me it's being aware of that and being aware of any sense of uh, 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 self-hatred self for having such thoughts of self-judgment and all the stuff that goes on when you, when you open up to these little negative things inside ourselves and to let that go and to put the real purpose of your helping in your mind and to make that as an act of giving right I'm going to help in this way we are 
developing just that just that habitude of helping people so this 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 whole process of bringing into consciousness everything that we uh, everything that uh, up until now has been unconscious these little unknown uh, intentions that we have gives us back our control over our lives and in so doing we undermine all this process which is driven by this deep sense of identity of I am a human being and it's, it's when that collapses that we find a completely different relationship to the world and you could say in a very broad sense of term uh, another identity So it's good to remember that when the Buddha actually became you know, fully awakened, he didn't disappear in a puff of smoke. He didn't sort of uh, become reduced to a sort of useless blob by the side of the road. Uh, he was still recognizably Siddhartha Gautama. Now when he walks around, everybody recognized who he was. And when he approaches his friends, you see, because uh, he's thinking about whom he could pass this good news on to, when he approaches his friend and he starts talking to them, uh, he, he, he constantly asks them, have you ever heard me speak like this before? Have you ever heard me speak like this? Have you ever heard me speak? Every time he says something, he says, have you ever heard me speak like this before? You see? And eventually, they're actually convinced that something's happened within Siddhartha Gautama and begin to open up to his teachings and, and find the same liberation. So that's our, that's our task, is to really understand that the world we're living in is the one that we are personally creating. There's no world outside our own consciousness. And once we grasp that, then we're looking for the causes of suffering inwardly and never outwardly. See, So it's the inner conditioning that we're constantly investigating and in so doing, finding ways to change it and understand how we create this world, which is not <coughs> always happy for us. And ultimately, the message of the Buddha is that there is a way of being in this world where there's no more suffering. I don't know of any psychotherapeutic school that has ever said that. That you can actually now, in this world, right in this life, find a place where there's no suffering. Yeah? That's pretty radical, huh? I can only hope my words have been of some assistance. May you be liberated from all suffering sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.